0: Welcome to the second season of Reset the Table. Russia's war in Ukraine affects agricultural markets and threatens food security for millions around the world. The UN Food Systems Summit is behind us, and COP27 and the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health are upon us. Join us as we examine solutions to food insecurity challenges around the world and right here at home. Our guests today are Beth Bechtel, Deputy Director General of the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, and Rain Paulson, Director of the UN FAO's Office of Emergencies and Resilience. Deputy Director General Bechtel and Director Paulson are based in Rome, but are joining us in CSIS's studios in Washington. Also with us is my colleague and friend, Jacob Kurtzer, Director of CSIS's Humanitarian Agenda. Everyone, thanks for joining us today for this conversation. Thanks for having us. Pleasure to be with you. I'll start with you, Deputy Director General Bechtel. The last time we met, which was in mid-March, we were only about two and a half weeks into Russia's war in Ukraine. At CSIS and throughout your meetings in Washington that week, you explained the FAO's thinking about the food security risks of the war and the FAO's top priorities when it comes to mitigating these risks. At this point, we're over 100 days into the war. And I'm wondering if you can explain to us how has the FAO's thinking evolved since then? And what are the FAO's priorities regarding the war and its food security impacts around the world?
1: Sure, I remember very well that engagement Caitlin that we had having the Deputy Minister of Agriculture join us live from the ground in Ukraine. It was very impactful conversation for all of us to have to realize what was very specifically happening on the ground there as it relates especially to the agricultural community. I think in many ways our priorities haven't changed over these last 100 days. I think what is changing is our assessment of of the continued impacts, not only on that particular region of the world, but now even more critically, the impacts that are reverberating around the world. And the concerns that we have for so many other crisis countries that we're needing to make sure we pay extra attention to. In Ukraine, the passage of time has obviously only served to worsen the situation for Ukrainians overall, but obviously for their farmers, their rural communities, their agricultural communities. Our focus is very much right now on the upcoming harvest, making sure that we and I think so many of the other stakeholders and partners are focused on how do we get grain out of storage for export, but then also ensure that that storage is available for the harvest that would be coming in July. We also are watching very closely the challenges that are being faced around commodity prices and other important markets. Our monthly food price index, which was just released on June 3rd, is demonstrating that food prices overall are down, but down so slightly that we recognize we still are in an incredibly precarious position with wheat and fertilizer costs very much at record high. The other point that I would just share before maybe we turn to others here at the table is we're also very closely monitoring export restrictions and export licensing requirements, restrictions that are taking place around the world. And these are beginning to get to a place of some high concern as we look at the situation around COVID, for example. Export restrictions that were put in place during the sort of time of the pandemic really only accounted at that time for about 7% of the global trade in calories, as we say. In the 2007-2008 food crisis, that number got to 17%. And today, with the impacts in Ukraine, we're right at about 17% again. And as we know, in the 07-08 period, those export restrictions led to the extreme price volatility that we saw, which created so many, I think, challenging situations. So as we said earlier, keeping markets open and focusing on ensuring that governments keep that momentum is really important. Yeah, thank you. You mentioned
0: that FAO is very focused on getting the grain that's in storage in Ukraine out of Ukraine for export and on the upcoming harvest. And I've heard that the FAO is framing the crisis this way, that at this point, we do not have a food availability problem. We have a food access problem. But the longer this war goes on, we will have a food availability
1: problem. Can you explain that a bit for us? Sure. I think it's a matter of really looking ahead at what does happen if we aren't able to get grain that is currently in storage out to these other markets. And we know how many countries are so critically dependent upon this particular Black Sea region as a source for their major commodities. The bigger concern really does become, If we aren't able to get the crop planted, get good yields out of that crop, get that crop harvested, and then that next crop out into the global marketplace, that starts to bring overall global supplies down considerably. And so that really does, Caitlin, get to your point about availability, overall supplies being diminished as opposed to simply a situation now of logistics, access, getting products to the right places, the right countries in need the situation in the coming months could change very significantly for us. Thank you for explaining that. I'll also note that I believe the latest estimate out of the USDA was for the
0: upcoming harvest from Ukraine, that exports would be reduced by about 35% due to the impacts of the war, which is obviously a significant amount. One of you can turn to talking about the situation on the ground in Ukraine. What do things look like right now and how's FAO supporting agriculture there?
1: Yeah, so we have a few different areas of work as it relates to our specific activities in in Ukraine. First, I would be remiss if I didn't give some notoriety to our very committed staff. We have over 100 individuals from FAO who are there on the ground in very, as we know, dangerous situations, very precarious situations, working with the Ukrainians in rural communities, which we also know rural communities and the places where Small-scale farmers especially are indeed in these targeted and conflict-driven regions of the country. So the team on the ground is now working with Ministry of Agriculture, University of Kiev, and other colleagues to make sure that we are getting potato and vegetable seeds to Ukrainians at this current time in the agricultural calendar. This is really important conceptually, and I want to make sure that those who are listening realize that. In these emergency situations, and Rain, who's here with me, can speak to this more in his comments, it's really important for us to think about the importance of agricultural livelihood support in the context of an emergency response. Oftentimes, the first reaction for many is to ensure that food assistance is provided. And it's critically important that we make sure that we're also providing The seeds, the fertilizer, the livestock care, the animal nutrition that also is needed that farmers and those in rural communities can continue to sustain that. I would also say I'd be remiss if I didn't make sure to mention the support that our headquarters team, oftentimes in Rome, provides in a context situation like this. Our statisticians, our economists, our analysts are all working around the clock to really do their best to keep track of these supply and demand commodity fundamentals, whether it's focused on wheat or sunflower oil, corn and barley. We know Ukraine is, you know, such a major contributor in all of these making sure that the knowledge providing of of what we know about these commodity markets is another one of, I think, the most critical contributions that we're able to make.
0: Thank you for all of that. You made me wonder, what does this support look like on the ground right now, this agricultural development support in the context of a war? What kind of security is necessary on the ground?
2: So as Beth was mentioning, what FAO is doing in Ukraine, and in fact, what we typically do in any emergency setting where we work is multi-level responses that are tailored and adapted to context. So we do some things that are quite unique in the context of Ukraine, and there are sort of four key areas on which we focus. The first of those that Beth was just mentioning has to do with attention to the most vulnerable rural farming households. So this is, you know, very much those families that have, you know, maybe backyard plots of land who are, by definition anyway, vulnerable and need urgent time-sensitive support. And so this can be, as we're doing on the ground for tens of thousands of households, a support with packages of seeds for different type of vegetable crops or for potatoes, support to poultry, those rearing and supporting pigs. These types of commodities and what we do in Ukraine and what we're doing in many contexts, but let me just focus on Ukraine, is some cash support. So this isn't just about what they can produce themselves, but it's important that they have some cash available to allow them to meet immediate needs as they uh, as they have. And when I say that we're tailoring to context, one of the things that we're seeing is an increasing number of elderly households. You've heard others from agencies who have a mandate and focus on displacement, I'm sure sharing numbers about that, but you know, one of the things we're seeing is that a lot of uh, younger people are moving or being forced to flee. And what's left in many of the rural areas are elderly families, elderly households, with all of the vulnerabilities that come from that needing urgent assistance. So that type of support is the first key pillar. Then we have a second piece, which is a little bit unusual, but really important in the context of Ukraine, which is a support then for slightly larger family enterprises, even businesses, right? And this is all about, you know, how do we support this wider agri-food system? How do we deal with some of the production and supply issues that are ultimately about support to these larger urban populations in Ukraine and, and support also outside? So that's key work then that we do in terms of technical assistance. And I should say, for us as FAO in Ukraine and other contexts, working with the government is indispensable. It's at the heart of what we do. So for us, that's with the Ministry of Agrarian Policy at Food at the national level. It's with the next administrative level down, what's called the Oblast and even down to the district level of the rayon. So all of the analysis we have, all of the plans we put in place have been discussed in full detail with the government and fully support their strategy. The assessment work is key, which is really the third pillar. You know, what's happening in terms of households? What's happening in terms of their ability to feed themselves? Have they had to sell assets in a distressed fashion to provide for their needs? That type of a picture of realities is a key part of what we do. And we work with governments at multiple levels to capture what's happening in terms of damages and loss. You know, what has the impact of the war been and what does that mean then for urgent humanitarian needs and also reconstruction needs? So those are a set of our key priorities in Ukraine.
3: Thanks, and Thank you, Beth, for your comments so far. I want to perhaps widen the aperture a bit and look at the globe. One of FAO's premier reports is the hunger hotspots. And we know that the crisis in Ukraine is an acute man-made crisis. But it's happening, and it's impacting food insecure places that are suffering because of climactic factors. So we know the Horn of Africa is experiencing a drought. And so I want to ask you first about one of the themes of the report, this idea of anticipatory action. Can you tell us what that means in the context of agricultural support to vulnerable communities? How should we be thinking about anticipating some of these upcoming or or down the road hunger crises?
2: This, I think, gets to the heart of one of the issues that FAO cares most strongly about when it comes to emergency and resilience. And it gets to the heart of, in fact, you know, how can we be as efficient, as cost-effective as possible? Let me use the example you mentioned, the Horn of Africa. We are in a, the tragic situation now of seeing the risk of famine uh, higher than ever. We're seeing now a fourth failed rains and projections possibly for a fifth failed rain. Uh, and indeed, in some parts of Somalia, just to take one example, the malnutrition threshold for famine has been broken in certain parts of the country. This is a catastrophic circumstances situation. Since the middle of last year, FAO has been putting in place anticipatory action activities. So this is about responding to the needs, for example, of livestock that are held at a household level before they get sick or before families are forced to sell them to have money, to buy other types of food that they need. Giving financial support to those families, giving animal health support, giving feed to the animals, giving vitamin supplements. These are all things that we can do in advance. We know when they're needed. We know when the stress periods come. We know when the lean seasons hit. There is no need to wait for a crisis to unfold to respond at detail. In fact, it's many more times expensive to do so, and that's quite apart from the issues of human dignity and basic support. So if I can talk openly, one of the frustrations that we've had also is, we also know what interventions make sense. Really the single constraining factor to anticipatory action at scale is funding. We know what needs to be done. We've done it in the past. Our response as FAO for anticipatory action in the horn last year when we rang the alarm bell for three countries raised just $8.5 million. That's almost an accounting error in the global scheme of things, and we should really be better than that. Again, we have the state of the art, we have the skills and experience, and we know what to do.
1: Can I come in on that point as well and maybe offer the listeners another view of what types of anticipatory actions I think going forward are almost at our fingertips and and things that we need to be thinking about in terms of disbursement and utilization in countries and using the Horn of Africa as the example. I mean, really thinking about the contributions that I think science and innovation and modern technologies can provide in these types of emergency crisis-driven situations is a really important component of this, whether it's about predictive climate, weather, meteorological types of models and systems, which many organizations are developing and now utilizing on a regular basis. But even in the space of seeds and crop protection, new varieties that will ultimately be drought resistant or have different nitrogen utilization traits and qualities, I think, are the types of advancements that we are already on the cusp of In terms of commercialization and being ready for farmers across the world, better fertilization utilization, if we really think about this particular situation, which has demonstrated to all of us a a heavy global reliance on a very traditional and commercial component of the agri-food system. Next generation research and development in biofertilizers or biostimulants of different kinds is another component of how we think about root causes in this space of anticipatory action that is also another important component of that discussion.
3: Thanks. You mentioned resource mobilization and the emphasis on anticipatory action, this need for innovation and working with local partners, but you also talk about ensuring access. And if you look at the hunger hotspots, some of the contexts that are identified as the most acute need, these are contexts where access is extremely challenging from both state and non-state parties. And so can you speak a little bit to how the FAO engages at the official level and unofficial level with all parties to ensure that these communities that are not parties to the conflict are able to have the tools and seeds and knowledge that they need to maintain their lives and livelihoods?
2: As the FAO, of course, we work in full alignment with humanitarian principles. We're driven by need. We're driven by our mandates and our technical expertise and and work on that basis. And that forms then the heart and the center of the discussions that we have with any and all stakeholders in any context where we work. One of the things that I think is really compelling about the role that agriculture specifically plays and should play and needs to play more of within humanitarian response is precisely the facility that exists. Yes to overcome some of the key access constraints. Let me give you a recent example. Tigray in northern Ethiopia has been in focus for understandable reasons with a population projected to be at risk of famine. You've maybe heard in other circumstances about challenges with getting convoys of food aid into Tigray. And what we've been working on as FAO is in line with our mandate local production. It's support. It's giving seeds and fertilizer and technical assistance to allow individuals to grow food themselves. Since August, last year, the estimates are that about 160,000 metric tons of food got into Tigray because of access constraints. Estimates for the same period tell us that about 900,000 metric tons of food were able to be produced in Tigray as a result of work that FAO and others did through early distribution of seeds. We don't need to get trucks with seeds in every two weeks for a campaign to be effective. And we've ended up in Tigray with a situation where key commodity prices for vegetables in Tigray is now at or even lower than pre-war levels, which is quite remarkable. So the work we do is indispensable in this regard, and I think agriculture plays a a key role. And for us, the engagement with actors around uh, access is always evidence-based, always linked to mandate, driven by interventions that make sense and in full transparency.
3: I want to just draw our attention to a different part of the world. When you look at the top 10 most acute hunger scenarios, a bunch in Africa, a bunch in the Horn, Afghanistan, and a couple in the Middle East, Yemen and Syria. But one pops out to me, specifically Haiti, right here on the functionally on the doorstep of the United States. Can you talk to us a little bit about why Haiti is experiencing this level of food insecurity and what we can be thinking about and doing in the United States to try to rectify that, given its proximity.
2: Complex questions to which, of course, there aren't simple answers, but I think the answer for Haiti is also an answer that applies in other places too. So let me focus on one piece in particular. There was analysis that FAO and the World Food Programme and partners through the Global Network Against Food Crisis has done recently that looked at funding over the last five years to food security in acute crisis such as Haiti. Only 8% of all of the money that went to food security went to agriculture. The rest went to in-kind support. Now, in Haiti, and Haiti is a country I know well, I had the privilege of working there in the early 1990s on food security programs. When I look at the types of interventions that are resourced today in terms of humanitarian response, they're very similar to the types of interventions we were resourcing in the mid-1990s. It doesn't mean that they are not appropriate and relevant at certain points in time, but there's an issue around balance and focus. And fundamentally, in an acute food security situation, we have to give people the ability to produce themselves. We cannot only always rely on provision of in-kind support. This was a complex question, that's a very quick response I've given, but it gets to the heart of one of the issues I do think we need to address if we want a step change. And by the way, from a taxpayer perspective, if I use the example of Afghanistan, wouldn't it be better And we provide a winter wheat package that costs $157, just under $160, it allows a family of seven to produce all of their cereal requirements for a 12-month period. If they had to buy that same flour on the local markets, if it was available, if they had the money, it would cost four times as much. If we had to provide supporters food aid, it would cost seven to nine times as much. There isn't enough money to fund humanitarian response in the world. We need to focus on what makes sense and what's most cost effective.
1: This is an important aspect of our time here in Washington, and having these types of conversations now with leadership in the U.S. government, the State Department, Congress, and others I can sense that there is a renewed appreciation for the fact that some of these older funding models, this approach we call sort of one triaged bandage crisis moment at a time, that it's not sustainable, as Rain has said. And so a number of our conversations on our visit here over these next few days, and I think a number of what are actually very similar conversations that we're having with many other countries who are donors, resource partners of FAO, this is the next important iteration of how we approach emergency situations, but then also very importantly, how we take that to the medium and longer term, I think, direction of transforming agri-food systems at a very national level. So it's something that I can sense is a change in the debate, the dialogue, the discussions, and it's, I think, really a good direction to be seeing as well
3: certainly donors have a role to play in reforming the funding models and, quite frankly, in spending more. The reports that you put out with WFP, with UNICEF, WHO, but one frustration, I think, from the humanitarian community is what is sometimes perceived as competition within the humanitarian organizations themselves. So, can you speak to conversations that might be happening within the UN system and with the NGO partners to make that funding easier for donors to know that we're funding a coordinated and coherent response and someone else isn't going to come knock on the door tomorrow for the same country for the same issue. Yeah, maybe
1: we both can speak to that from our different positions. I oversee our work around UN coordination and also what's called Rome-based agency, RBA collaboration, which for those who aren't familiar are the three food agencies headquartered in Rome, FAO, the World Food Program and the International Fund for Agricultural Development or EFOD. I think, Jacob, we're, we're still trying to get to the right way of working together. But what I will tell you is that well, I think many of our challenges actually reside at a headquarters level. When it really comes to the competition or what we say to one another, might seem to be competing mandates and competing approaches. Because oftentimes the relationships with the donors does tend to sort of center around a headquarters dynamic, where we really are starting to see, I think, better ways of working is at the country level and in the field, and a lot of that depends on the people. But what I will tell you is that there is a new, improved way of working as one UN with the UN country teams under the leadership of what are called resident coordinators. These are very important individuals in that country position for the UN as they are there to sort of synthesize, strategize, whether it's UNDP, UNICEF, FAO, WFP, There are much stronger directives being given to all of us collectively to ensure that we are more efficient, we're more aligned, we aren't stepping over one another. And you're even starting to see, I think it's still very early days, some shared funding structures where there are multi-agency trust funds that are being developed where, again, we're not competing to have individual funding streams, but are actually trying to pool resources together so that we can maybe try to eliminate some of that concern. It's a work in progress. It is true that, sadly, the development assistance, what we call ODA, is declining as we find ourselves in this particular moment coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic. National priorities are taking precedent over contributions that go to foreign assistance. And so it means that we are still, in many ways, competing for a much more limited resource pool. So new and innovative ways to think about how we achieve that is a priority.
2: I wanted maybe to come in on this really important point as well. A key part of what we do as the FAO is, and indeed the UN system as a whole, is not just implement activities ourselves. We have a key mandated role also around coordination and leadership, which is intended to help address some of the issues that you've talked about. And we do have some interesting models there. So for example, the World Food Programme and FAO, we jointly lead. We lead together the food security cluster at a global level, at a country level. And we do that because we each have respective strengths, mandates, and technical expertise. And FAO leads on the agricultural side and the World Food Programme is a co-lead given their skills, experience, and strengths when it comes to in-kind food assistance, right? And at the country level, as Beth was saying, these things, I think, usually work very well. And they work well when we draw on everyone's respective strengths. And that's really the model that we need to follow. Tragically, there is more than enough work to be done in this space at the moment as a hotspot. Uh, report points to that you already referenced. And so for us, it's really about these issues of comparative advantage.
0: Thank you. I'd like to conclude with a question that brings us back to the crisis in Ukraine and its impacts around the world. One question that I will often receive is, what can we do to help? And I'd like to see what your thoughts are in terms of what governments can do to support food security in Ukraine and to help alleviate the food insecurity impacts of the war, what the private sector can do, and what citizens and individuals can do.
1: I think what I would say, and maybe it's, Caitlin, in response to your comment about a message to national governments, let me start with that. Our Director General and also uh, Director David Beasley and the IFAD President, Jiber Hungbo, were all invited just a few weeks ago to New York. To participate in a high-level ministerial roundtable on global food insecurity, the United States Secretary Blinken pulled together a really, I think, incredible dialogue and discussion that highlighted there in the UN the precarious position that so many countries are, are finding themselves in. Our director general made four really strong points, and I'm simply going to, in a way, repeat them because I think they are these really strong messages to governments, especially what the first is. It is time for us to ensure that we scale up emergency assistance in agriculture, and we've talked about that here at the table, so I won't say more on that. The second is invest in agri-food systems transformation. And this does start to get to those medium and longer-term opportunities for us to really focus on climate crisis, mitigation, adaptation, biodiversity loss, science and innovation, One Health approach. There are so many of these national food systems issues that need further discussion, debate, and context given to The third is really making sure that we do apply cutting-edge technologies, cutting-edge innovations, the opportunities for digital agriculture to emerge as an opportunity for support, agricultural research and science. We talked about that some already. But the fourth is maybe one that doesn't necessarily come to mind, which is to prioritize the reduction of food loss and waste. Again, at a national level, we have really high amounts of food loss and waste today that if we were to alleviate that problem, we could feed 1.3 billion people who are without the kinds of food security that are needed now. So when you think about calls to governments, I think there are are a lot of very tactical, action-oriented steps that could be taken there. Let me also just very briefly touch on the private sector. We've talked about them before. This is very highly important area of potential collaboration where we see great opportunity for the private sector to come in and provide, whether it's production assistance, especially now as we're thinking about grain storage solutions in Ukraine fertilizer availability and production supplies. But again, back to this science and innovation and technology space that the private sector has a role to play, we see them as critically important partners, not only in the situation that we find ourselves in Ukraine, but in so many of the other crisis-driven countries that will ultimately need more engagement coming than just from national partners. Thank you, Beth. Rain.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, the first point I'd make is that it's imperative that we keep a focus on context outside of Ukraine. That's not because we don't need to do everything we have to do in Ukraine to respond to the situation there. But this latest analysis that we shared, the Hunger Hotspots report, tells us that we have unprecedented numbers of people on the precipice of famine and in famine-like conditions. 49 million people around the world. And the trends are worsening. For governments, this means that we need to make sure that whatever has to be done around Ukraine does not divert funding or attention from these other crises. We need new additive funding for the activities in Ukraine. We cannot take resources away from these acutely vulnerable communities around the world. And I think this issue of balance, this issue of application of principles, we talked about principles in the context of access. If we are truly to respond based on need alone and based on evidence, we need to have that logic apply globally, not just within a single country or within a particular response.
0: I think that's a perfect place for us to end. Rain Paulson, thank you so much for joining us today. Beth Bechtel and my colleague, Jacob Kurtzer, thank you so much for this important conversation. Please follow us on Twitter at Food. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. That's it for today's episode of Reset the Table. You can subscribe on Apple or Spotify and follow us on Twitter at CSIS food until next time.